Welcome to another episode of Everything is Arbitrary. I'm Erin. I'm a writer from Canberra coming to you, as always, uh, from my bedroom floor, uh, where you don't have to hear the hum of my refrigerator. Today's episode is going to be about weddings. In my country at the moment, weddings are still allowed, but attendance numbers have been capped. Uh, In the initial COVID lockdown, they couldn't have more than five people in attendance, which is really the minimum number of people legally required to be there in order to actually get married. Uh, So you need the couple, so there's two people, the celebrant, and two witnesses, so five Um, Beyond that very basic turnout, weddings can take a whole number of sizes and ceremonies, traditions, and other practices. They can be legal or ceremonial or both. Weddings can be very prescriptive and very dramatic, and despite their arbitrariness, they're usually very memorable and meaningful. Many people will cite their wedding day as the best day of their whole life. So through this episode, um, I'll be fairly critical of weddings, but don't construe anything I have to say as being necessarily anti-marriage or anti-wedding on the whole. Um, I'm, I am a married person. I had a wedding. I genuinely like going to other people's weddings. I find them pretty and fun, mostly. Um, when I was a kid, I liked being a flower girl. <laughs> to different weddings um and I've always been a fan of cake and so the the cake is is really a nice aspect of weddings the niceness though doesn't mean that we shouldn't pick apart how weddings came to be and the historical political and economic forces at play when we celebrate relationships in this way weddings are weirdly they're they're the most public display of your most personal feelings while at the same time also not being that much about you at all. I decided to focus specifically on weddings and not marriage for this episode, although obviously it's quite difficult to talk about weddings without talking at some length about marriage. If you define marriage broadly enough, lots of people actually argue that marriage is a human universal I haven't spoken much about human universals on this show before because there really aren't that many of them. The concept of a human universal obsesses certain schools of anthropology because they're elements of a society or a culture that exist everywhere. And so you could therefore kind of argue that they're part of the human condition. And there's a lot of arguing over what might constitute a human universal. But broadly, some things that exist throughout human cultures include things like language, names, people have names, the concept of age, containers, as in like people seem to like to put things inside other things, kin groups, like families, but not necessarily in the same way that you define a family personally, Um, conflict, that's universal, taboos, control of fire, tools, and, you know, interestingly, possibly marriage. Marriage is a way to recognize a relationship between two or more people. In most cases, that relationship is sexual or reproductive in nature, um, although not necessarily, as as we can see around us. It confers upon the married people certain rights and obligations, And there's always rules around who can or can't get married and to whom. And those rules are very variable and obviously quite political. Marriage can 
but doesn't necessarily have a legal or bureaucratic element. So weddings are the ritual that takes place in order to initiate the marriage. In, in any case, depending on how you define it, marriages or marriage-like relationships are a pretty consistent way that humans like to organize themselves. And weddings are a fairly consistent way of indicating to people that the, those people in the marriage are married. So as I said, who has access to marriage is very culturally specific, political, and variable. And again, I don't really want to talk too much about marriage as opposed to weddings because it's, it's, a, it's like such a big topic and I'd end up getting pretty lost in it. But I want to point out that things like the genders of people getting married, their age, whether they're in love, whether that marriage is arranged on their behalf, whether those getting married are related to each other, how many people are entering into the marriage, what other kinds of relationships the married parties are allowed to maintain outside of that marriage, whether or not the married parties have had sex before. All of these things are up in the air when we think about marriage and the ceremonies meant to celebrate and legitimize those relationships. There's archaeological evidence of weddings from around 2350 BCE and in Mesopotamia, uh, and also claims that it's an even older ritual than that. You see evidence of weddings through a range of ancient societies. And just to be clear, I want to emphasize that just because marriage is probably human universal doesn't mean it isn't ever problematic. It's actually super problematic. Marriage can come to subjugate and oppress people, especially women. Marriage can make people very unhappy. It can deliver burdensome levels of obligation. And it can be a really limiting institution. The point of marriage varies, but one of the reasons you can boil it down to is that a patriarch of a family wants to be able to be sure that his children are really his. And I mean, this isn't really unique actually even to humans. You see attempts to validate paternal status in pretty much any animal that offers paternal care. And marriage is just the weird and complicated solution that humans have come up with. Obviously, we can divorce weddings and marriage from that original purpose in, in the way we go about those relationships today. But that is a very real motivation for having like guarantees, particularly of monogamy, particularly monogamy of the woman in the marriage. Often... Part of the wedding ritual is some guarantee that the bride is a virgin, that she'll be monogamous. The father of the bride is making a good faith contract with the groom that she'll produce him some heirs. In ancient Greek wedding ceremonies, a father would hand over his daughter by saying, I pledge my daughter for the purpose of producing legitimate offspring. In some societies, men can take several wives, uh, polygamy is definitely not uncommon in the world, uh, and where it does happen, it's usually, although not always, a situation of polygyny. So we've got one man marrying or otherwise maintaining relationships with multiple women. In ancient Greece and Rome, married men could also have a wide array of sexual relationships while their wives stayed in the household and were not to take any lovers outside of the marriage. 
A woman not being able to produce offspring has been seen as a legitimate cause for an annulment or a divorce. The church and the state are variably involved in weddings. After Christianity came to dominate Europe, for instance, weddings required the blessings of priests in order for the marriage to be legally legitimate. In a range of religions, uh, marriage is regarded as a sacred institution, and so if you want your marriage to be recognised in the eyes of God, uh, your wedding ceremony has to have certain features. Certain people might have to agree to the marriage, like the bride's father, although not always necessarily the bride. Uh, You might need an offering or a dowry, and you might have to say specific things. Weddings are ritualistic. They're seen as as important ceremonies that transform those involved, particularly the people getting married. And for that transformation to take place, certain steps are required. Although, as I said, what those steps are can vary quite a lot. Some people argue for the continued relevance of marriage in the modern Western world by drawing on the fact that it is a ritual – It operates within a tradition, and it's therefore rich with meaning. And I guess I have two responses to that. The first is that, as I'll explain, some of these traditions are not actually very traditional. There's some practices around weddings that are ancient, and some practices whose meanings are originally abhorrent and very violent, especially towards women. Some of those traditions persist, although they might be void of their original meaning. And so whether or not you think they continue to be problematic is a matter of personal opinion. On top of that, there's also many more benign traditions that come from the 20th century, and I guess you could understand them as traditional in the sense that maybe your grandparents did something similar at their wedding, but probably not your ancestors much further away from that. So the question of whether it's traditional... Yeah, okay, maybe. The other point I'd make is that rituals aren't exactly rare in the West or anywhere. We're always taking part in rituals. It's just that they're often rationalised by the scientific method and the Western framework tends to think of rituals as inherently irrational. So if you're doing something rational, then it's not a ritual. But actually, that's not really how it works. It's as though... If there's a good reason to do it, it's not a ritual, but I don't know, something else. I don't know what you would call that. But this is mistaken. If you brush your teeth twice a day, which you know is is a good idea, uh, you're regularly practicing a teeth brushing ritual. You take some steps to confer upon yourself protection against plaque and bacteria. Something meaningful has taken place. All rituals are as fundamental as tooth brushing. It, it can't really be a ritual if you don't think of it as fundamental or if it's something that you think to question why you're doing it, like, constantly. And so I'd probably say to someone who doesn't really want to get married that they probably shouldn't get married unless they can see the point of it. But that's a topic I'll get to later. A legal wedding in its bare-boned form is pretty basic. If you want to get married in Australia, you lodge a notice of intended marriage between 1 and 18 months before the wedding. 
You engage in the services of either a celebrant, a minister, or a registrar. You sign a form at the wedding and find two witnesses to sign that form alongside the person officiating. There's no such thing as a spontaneous wedding here, like on TV, when a couple like decides that they'll just like get married on a whim. Those do exist, but you'd have to travel to a different jurisdiction, like Nevada in the US. As well, in Australia, at least one member of the couple has to be over 18 years old, and the other has to be at least over 16. You can actually get married if you're both 16 or 17 years old, but you either need to get parental permission or a court order to do so. In order to get married, you also aren't allowed to have already been married unless you've got a divorce. You also can't be closely related to each other. Weddings in Australia have to adhere to the relevant marriage act, which has been changed relatively recently to endorse same-sex marriages. The wedding includes the statement that defines what marriage is. So the celebrant has to read the line, marriage means the union of two people to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. There are places with greater and fewer conditions than Australia, but this is pretty much what a wedding is. Yet when you think of weddings, you might not necessarily think of paperwork and legal conditions. You probably think of a massive party, and that party has certain tropes. And we all know how those tropes go. One of the unfortunate tropes is heteronormativity, that marriage is between a man and a woman, which is very problematic and something I will talk about briefly later. Of course, we don't have to have a wedding that conforms with these tropes. But just taking, like, as examples from my own experience, it's pretty amazing how rebellious people seem to think you are if you don't conform with various tropes. So if you don't invite 100 plus people to your wedding, if you don't wear a white dress, or don't, if you're a woman getting married to a man, if you don't do all the wedding preparations yourself, or take your husband's name, or get given away by your father. The feedback I've gotten for not following these rules has been like universally positive for me. But I feel like getting married is probably one of the most socially conservative decisions I've ever made. So the fact that there's any room for rebellion at all when you have a wedding is just kind of odd to me. But there is loads of room. In heterosexual wedding industry norms, in Anglo culture, especially but not solely among white people, as Gia Tolentino lays out in her fabulously named essay, I the Dread, a 12-month engagement is assumed. The bride-to-be plans and holds an engagement party as quickly as possible after the engagement. The couple may hire a wedding planner, which in the US costs an average of $3,500. They may choose a venue, $13,000, and obviously they'll have to choose a date. And if you're engaged and you don't have a date, you can look forward to being constantly asked when that date will be. Uh, it's another pop culture trope that an engagement without a wedding date is not really serious and suggestive of commitment issues. These days a wedding website is common and the hosting fees can be between free and expensive. The average cost in US dollars is 100 US dollars. A gift registry may be there too, with about $4,800 worth of gifts the happy couple can expect to be given. 
With eight months to go, the bride-to-be is expected to have arranged florals, $2,000, catering, which is $12,000 on average, music, $2,000, and a photographer, $6,000. She'll have amassed her army of bridesmaids, um, and it's now customary to purchase gifts to, I guess, propose um, to this group of usually women bridesmaids. Uh, she'll get quite a lot of unsolicited advice um, and it will be up to her to handle it diplomatically. Although somehow anyone tangibly involved with your wedding is at risk of taking every single one of your decisions personally. Like if you don't get married in a church or if you don't ask others for their thoughts on every decision you make or if you don't hire someone's best friend's babysitter's cousin as your photographer. Um, <laughs> as you might have guessed, this is all quite cathartic for me to say. The amount of unsolicited advice and recommendations I got in the lead up to my wedding was probably the second most stressful part of getting married. The most stressful part was other people continually asking me if I was stressed and, and incorrectly attributing all of my problems to my upcoming wedding instead of, I don't know, listening to me. But this is a digression. There's also the dress. Average US cost of $1,600, although this number can get very, very much higher. It's thought to be tradition to have a white dress to emphasize the bride's virginal status. But in fact, other colors were more common traditionally. In ancient Greece, violet or red was more common for wealthy brides, blue in Renaissance Europe, black silk in France and England in the 1800s. Um, I hate to use bored panda as a reference, but on their website there's a heap of beautiful wedding dress pictures from around the world in a big array of colours. So pink and red are common dress colour choices in India, red in China, purple and cream in Malaysia. Bright colours are popular in Nigeria and Peru and in the Ukrainian Carpathian Mountains. In Ghana, families will have their own kind of colourful cloth patterns that will feature in wedding outfits. And a similar practice happens in Scotland with the groom wearing a kilt in his clan's tartan pattern and the bride sometimes adding a shawl with the same tartan to her ensemble after the ceremony. Hungarian and Uzbek brides tend to get dresses with elaborate embroidered patterns. Balinese couples often wear golden crowns. Cultural outfits are generally very prevalent, like the Japanese kimono, the Mongolian deal, the Norwegian bunad, the Korean handbok, and so many more. I just don't have time to list them. And frankly, all of them make the white dress look incredibly boring. As with many things, and it's a bit of a theme for sure, I realise, we can blame the Victorians for the white dress that's pervaded weddings in Anglo cultures and in a lot of Western cultures in general. So in the past, weddings were more likely to be quiet, private gatherings, no reception, in a dress that wasn't new and would be reworn subsequently to the wedding. English royals tended to get married in red, but Queen Victoria got married to Prince Albert in a white lace silk satin dress trimmed with orange blossoms. 
Apparently it was quite scandalous, as white was then seen as a colour of mourning, which is a connotation you might not like to take into your wedding. The technology wasn't available at the time to capture the actual wedding day on camera, but you better believe the public had an appetite for reenactment pics and vivid descriptions in the newspapers. So Queen Victoria got married in 1840, but by 1849, everything she did was described as traditional. By that point, people thought of white as the traditional wedding dress colour, the colour one must be married in. An article in Gaudi's Ladies' Book from 1849 reads, Custom has decided from the earliest ages that white is the most fitting hue, whatever may be the material. It is an emblem of the purity and innocence of girlhood and the unsullied heart she now yields to the chosen one. A nine-year turnaround to make tradition is very, very fast, although... Our lives are strangely littered with examples of stuff we think is traditional but is actually not old at all. So yeah, in nine years, the white dress, the royal opulence, the procession, the flowers, the music, the invitations were all solidified as how weddings are done. So let's keep this in mind when we get back to our troopy, stereotypical bride-to-be. At six months before the wedding, she will have arranged engagement photos, $500, Designed invitations, programs and place cards, $750, and honeymoon arrangements, $4,000. At four months, the cake, $450, and the rings, $2,000. Let's talk about some of these things. The practice of engaged couples taking photos of them together isn't really particularly new. Um, It's been going on for decades at least, and back when people put engagements announcements in the newspapers it was handy to have like a pic of of the couple to include. But booking in a photographer to do a full-on photo shoot is a pretty recent occurrence and it seems to coincide with social media use. Sometimes wedding photographers offer engagement photos as part of their overall wedding package, but not always. And they can be kind of nice. It's pretty rare actually for couples, especially younger couples, to have high-quality images of them together. And you don't always have a lot of time on your wedding day to hang out and take candid or like semi-candid sort of staged candid shots of you basking in each other's love or whatever. So engagement photos aren't traditional or they're not even at a point where they're mandatory or expected, but they are kind of becoming that way. Um, And it will be really interesting to see if in a decade or so, they'll be as ubiquitous as the engagement ring. Speaking of, the diamond engagement ring is a tradition made up in 1947 by a copywriter, Francis Geraghty, with the slogan, Diamonds Are Forever. So one company literally had a surplus of diamonds and wanted to sell them as engagement gifts. And so now they're a normal part of the engagement process, so much so that they seem, well timeless like forever wedding rings are a much older tradition and we see them in ancient and medieval times usually though the ring is conferred upon the bride some cultures do have old traditions of a ring exchange between the wedding parties but in the u.s the male wedding ring was first conceived in the world war ii era while the idea of a male engagement ring was also pursued by marketers it didn't really catch on 
But the idea that a man going off to war with a like a ring as a symbol of his wife at home was really salient. And it marked the start of the double ring exchange between both husband and wife. And by the 50s, it had become tradition. Honeymoons are a rather older tradition, but they are really dark. Uh, so for one thing, the word comes from the Scandinavian practice of drinking mead, which is fermented honey, uh, for the moon cycle after your marriage in order to improve fertility. A saying from the 1500s went, as the moon wanes, so will your love, which lacks some of the optimism of maybe what you want to say to couples getting married today. But the history of honeymoons get, gets much worse. So wedding historian Susan Wagoner says that the honeymoon as a practice of escaping your usual locale with your spouse um, comes from the practice of marriage by capture. So say you're a man from the past and you like the look of a woman, but you know that her family would never let you marry her in a nice ceremony. Well, that's no obstacle. You can pretty much abduct her, take her to a secret location, and at that point, either she'll get pregnant or her family will stop looking for her and you're married. Yay. And because tradition seems to be the answer to the question of why are you still doing this thing, even where marriage by capture grew to be less of a thing, the honeymoon by abduction became its own kind of ritual, albeit, like, happily, a staged one. So a couple would get married with the bride's family's consent, then the groom would pretend to smuggle her off somewhere because tradition, and Wagner writes, it became customary for the groom to, to pay the father a bride price beforehand to have a public ceremony before completing the abduction, in air quotes, abduction. Hence, weddings grew out of the marriage by capture tradition and mostly honeymoons too. Only now we go to the Maldives or something instead of a grim bunker. Wedding cakes are a bit more fun. Uh, Queen Victoria famously had a giant cake at her wedding. It was, it was really huge. It was this fruit cake. It weighed over 100 kilos, and a preserved slice of it was actually sold at auction in 2016 for £1,500. Victoria probably can take credit for extravagant wedding cakes with elaborate cake toppers and so on, but she can't really take credit for cake. The origins of a wedding cake kind of dates back to ancient Rome, where weddings concluded with the groom breaking a loaf of barley bread over the bride's head, which apparently symbolised fertility. Uh, he also did not clean up the crumbly mess. Uh, the idea was for guests to pick up the crumbs uh, and thus pick up a morsel of good luck. In medieval England, they ate spiced buns at weddings. Uh, the buns were arranged in a huge pile, and the bride and groom were meant to kiss each other over the pile. And if they managed to do it without destroying the pile, it was also seen as good luck. In general, though, uh, Western wedding celebrations were traditionally more likely to feature pie than cake, um, really until sugar became available. But back to our stereotypical, heteronormative, rather wealthy bride-to-be. One of the cheapest costs of her wedding is her administration fees, so paying for a marriage license and a celebrant and the like. 
Not that those are really very cheap, but given that you can't actually be married without them, they're comparatively a bargain. By the time all the makeup and the hair trials and the actual makeup and the hair are done, plus the bachelor and bachelorette party, shoes, rehearsal dinner, all that stuff, on average, a wedding takes a year of planning and $30,000. And that is all for a certificate that you can get for a few hundred dollars at most. Speaking of bachelor and bachelorette parties, so the bachelor party dates back to probably the 5th century BC among the Spartans, um, and there was a practice among Spartan soldiers where they'd toast a man who was about to get married, and the groom-to-be would reaffirm his loyalty to the group. It was, it really sounds like a kind of proto-bros-before-hose kind of speech, so the point wasn't to celebrate your last day of freedom, because obviously that's nonsense, especially since ancient men weren't really forced to get married, and once they were married, they could continue doing what they wanted to do with who they wanted anyway. Um, rather, it was just an expression of solidarity with their friends, despite the, the changes, the huge life changes they were going through. Over time, the bachelor party has sort of spiralled into its own night of debauchery. The etiquette expert and advice columnist Emily Post wrote in 1922 that the popular opinion that they're, quote, a frightful orgy was wrong, and that they were in fact, another quote, arid as the Sahara Desert and quite as flat and dreary. The bachelor dinner was in truth, more often than not, a sheep's in wolf's clothing. So she said it was just a dinner, maybe with some live music. Although, I have to wonder, how would she know? Like, has she been to a bachelor party? Are her sources reliable? Certainly there's other pop cultural references to bachelor parties that make it sound far seedier. Uh, in 1896, P.T. Barnum's grandson had a bachelor party that made the news um, and it was raided by the police after rumours circulated that a famous belly dancer was set to perform, quote, indecent dances in the nude for party guests. And then obviously uh, further pop cultural references to bachelor parties uh, kind of make that sound almost prudish. Because sexism, probably, the bachelorette party isn't an ancient tradition. Their rise seems to have begun in the 1960s during the sexual revolution, and it actually wasn't until 1981 that the first notable usage of the phrase bachelorette party appeared in print, and that's in a New York Times article about, about the then New York governor's remarriage and his wife-to-be's pre-wedding party. The bridal shower is an older alternative. Uh, it likely started in the Netherlands in the 16th century, and developed kind of instead of a dowry system. So a dowry is the amount of money or assets or resources a bride brings into her marriage. And usually it's paid by the bride's parents to the groom or to the groom's family. So where a prospective bride is poor, she could be rejected by the groom's parents. So a bridal shower was basically a party where the bride's friends and well-wishers could give her stuff that would make her marriageable in lieu of a dowry. The gifts would be a kind of dowry replacement. So again, the point is not really celebrating the last days of freedom, 
because either which way women had no freedom, it was really about not scaring off the in-laws with your meagre possessions. Back when Queen Victoria was married, the story and details of her wedding was really a fantasy for people. Her procession and pomp and so on was so, so far outside the realm of what was possible for regular people that it wasn't immediately aspirational. But by the 20th century, weddings had become a kind of reasonably accessible way for middle-class families to give an air of royal-style wealth, since you only have to maintain the image of luxury for a single day. Until this time, a Western wedding was usually fairly sedate. As I said, you know, the dress is not going to be the most expensive you'd ever wear in your life. You probably would wear it again. It'd be held in a church during a Sunday service, nothing too grand, no reception, maybe a tiny gathering afterwards. We often talk about brides nowadays spending money excessively on their weddings and like this bridezilla kind of stereotype is something new. Um, and it's not... I mean, it's a bit offensive to women, but it's not entirely wrong. But the trend towards the decadence really became prevalent at that start of the 20th century. It's not as new as you might think. The wedding industry even tried to make weddings a relatively depression-proof thing to spend money on. So in the 1930s, there was an increased coverage of weddings in newspapers and these weddings would be described in detail, so the gowns, the reception, the gifts, the opulence, almost to incite fantasy in the readers. So decadence was a means to imagine life without poverty during the Depression, um, and it, it made brides almost like low-grade celebrities for a short time. At the outbreak of World War II, businesses in the bridal industry like gown manufacturers and jewellers sought exemptions from wartime rationing by arguing that rings and the dress were a central tradition and that stable societies and families relied on being able to access this stuff in order to get, to get married, in order to propagate further families. Since the whole point of going to war was to protect these things, to protect stability, to protect the family, protect prosperity, the argument was that, well, we may as well uphold these things in the meantime while the war's going on. The decadence climbed some more after the war and war rations were lifted. In the 50s as well, we actually see the age of marriage decreasing. The average American bride was only 20 when she got married, compared with 22 at the start of the 20th century. Um, although the average age of marriage is, is pretty steadily creeping back up, the wedding became something that was desirable earlier in life and that younger people were thinking about, and that was ingrained in our culture as the most important day of your life. Quirkier weddings that accommodated to countercultural tastes and aesthetics started to be observed in the 70s. The idea now was that a wedding would showcase the couple's personality, as well as potentially still being opulent. Through time, weddings have gone through trends of being more or less traditional, and of course there's been fashion trends in terms of dress styles and whatnot. We have more TV shows about weddings, shows where spending buckets of money is the expectation. We also have things like Instagram and Pinterest, which showcase alternative hipster aesthetics, things like mason jars and bunting and so on. And often these alternative aesthetics aren't so cheap. Whether you're getting fine crystal for your wedding or you're getting some jars of Etsy, it still takes a lot of money to showcase your unique personalities. 
Weddings are clearly not quite pandemic proof, but they have been shown to be pretty well recession proof. In the midst of global economic downturns, spending on weddings has increased. And the global wedding market is a $300 billion industry. There's lots of choices you can make about the actual wedding ceremony and many different ideas about how a ceremony should go. Um, I don't really think it's that useful to list all of the variations here because they, they can be very diverse. Um, but I will include some details in the show notes. But what bears mentioning, in case it's not already clear, is that there's no one way that people get married. There's no specific set of practices that bestow on a marriage legitimacy or luck or meaning, except for what those getting married and the people present bring to the ceremony. It's just unfortunate that it seems like there's a huge expectation or pressure to spend like tons and tons of cash in, in doing this. After the wedding, it's time for the honeymoon and all the thank you notes, the wedding album, usually the paperwork involved in changing one's name. The majority of women in Australia who get married to a man do change their name. But if you do choose to change your name, you have to change details on your driver's license, doctor's surgery, anywhere that has your medical records, insurance companies, electricity, gas and water providers, passport, tax office, bank, your place of work, your mortgage provider or landlord, mobile phone provider, internet provider, any store cards you might have, roadside assistance provider, local service providers like hairdressers, dry cleaners, mechanics, etc. You have to change your name with your vet for your subscriptions to magazines or like Netflix or whatever. Memberships like your gym membership. Um, maybe one of the wedding blessings should be to wish the bride tons of energy as she makes her way through married lists and bureaucracy. Really though, the preparation for a wedding doesn't start at your engagement. It probably starts from childhood. Obsession about marriage in popular culture is pretty gendered. Girls in particular have a large range of Disney characters to watch whose basic storyline is her trajectory towards marriage, like Ariel from The Little Mermaid, who sacrifices her literal like voice box in order to get married, or Belle from Beauty and the Beast, who gets married to someone who is like, like clearly incredibly abusive. Um, but even though only a bit over half of, say, like the adult American population are married, the assumption most of us grow up with is that someday you will get married. And often this is even invoked like very casually and very pervasively. You'll be doing something, especially as a girl, and like someone will tell you, well, that's not very ladylike. How will you get a husband if you do that? And you're like five or something. This assumption can have a greater or lesser intensity in various regions of the world and in various cultures. It can really feel awful for people to be constantly asked, especially as they get into their 20s or 30s, when are you going to get married? Why haven't you found the one yet? And, and so on. It's interesting to me, though, that the pressure seems to center often on the wedding itself rather than on the realities of marriage. Parents who badly want to see their children get married would usually get disappointed if their children were to elope, so if they were just to be married and not have a big wedding. The apparent faux pas of elopement comes up a fair bit in advice columns, 
And while the takeaway generally seems to be sensible musings about how it's really the quality of the marriage that counts, not the wedding, it's still incumbent on the couple who's eloping to do a lot of compromising and damage control in order to not have a traditional kind of wedding and in order to like avoid having to spend the value of a house deposit on a single party. The couple has to reassure their family and friends that they don't mean anything personal by eloping, they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, this is just that like their individual choice. They're still also encouraged to do some of the labor involved in having a wedding, like making a wedding announcement, making a wedding website with pictures of the wedding and of their honeymoon and hosting a celebration that's not a wedding but may look suspiciously a lot like a small wedding. Sometimes it seems more like people want couples to have a wedding rather than to get married. And a lot of our Disney stories end on the wedding day. The couple get married and they all live happily ever after and the story is bereft of details about what it's actually like to live with and wake up next to the same person day after day. And it's not just a problem because of the myopic focus on the wedding, it's also a problem because there's no stories, especially for children, about like how to be married and the joys and also the challenges of being married. It's sort of like you have your wedding and then... I don't know, like, the interesting part of your life is over, but obviously that's not the case. Well, I hope not. The debutante ball, uh, which is a very old-fashioned ritual, is this kind of dance where young ladies are introduced to society when they're about 16 or so, making it publicly known that they're available for good offers of marriage. It's kind of like a cattle market, but with waltzing, and very luxurious white dresses. Um, and actually the debutante dress and the wedding dress are nearly indistinguishable, except the wedding dress presumably costs a ton more and deb de dresses don't have veils or trains. The parties are decked out like a wedding. There'll be flowers and a meal, probably cake, formal invitations and an official photographer it's actually a brief run through of how a wedding would go, except that there's quite a lot of couples represented instead of only one. I don't actually know many people who have participated in these. Um, my school actually had one, and I remember most of us being rather conscientious objectors to the whole thing, and so we didn't go. They're also fairly popular in a smattering of places, Australia, likely via the UK, although ironically um, they've largely stopped in the UK after 1956 when the Queen abolished them. Uh, Austria, parts of Latin America, and among really rich Americans, um, they're also quite common. Sometimes they're called a cotillion rather than a debutante ball, but as far as I can make out, they're just two words for the same thing. The significance of the deb ball is that it rather explicitly calls on young women to imagine themselves as brides and to like dress up as brides and to parody being a bride and to think about their wedding, almost certainly in a heteronormative like framing, since as far as I'm aware, these events are not usually structured to include the wide array of sexual preferences people actually have. On that note, conventions around weddings, even expectations around a child's future wedding, assume heteronormativity. They assume that a wedding involves a male groom and a female bride getting married. Other kinds of relationships, such as same-sex relationships, polyamorous relationships, relationships which include people 
of a range of sexual and gender identities often get excluded when we talk about weddings. And the exclusion brings about multiple issues. The first is that your relationship might not be readily celebrated or recognised by others. You may not even be able to legally have a wedding. There's no jurisdiction, for instance, which allows group marriage. And many jurisdictions around the world still don't allow same-sex marriage or don't allow trans people to officially register themselves as their gender. We do see, though, that as marriage equality gets enacted through the world, the evidence suggests that same-sex couples still counter just as much pressure to get married. A Canadian study found that after 2005, which was the year same-sex marriage was legalised there, the pressure really ramped up. Because same-sex couples were previously unable to marry, many LGBTQ people had developed relationship models outside of this sort of status quo. And many of the participants grew up at a time when coming out itself basically meant that a wedding would never be on the table for you. That's no longer true. And so greater legal equality for a range of relationships is clearly like super vital and necessary and it makes a difference in how people in those relationships are seen by others and perhaps how they see themselves too. It also may end up slightly diversifying the pressure people are put under to have weddings, to spend all their money on weddings, to imagine themselves getting married and the impacts are still unfolding. That was another episode of Everything is Arbitrary. Links to my sources and other further reading can be found on the website everythingisarbitrary.com. That's also where you'll find links to my Facebook and Instagram pages. Thanks!